0: Welcome to the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with the first openly HIV-positive person hired to work for UNAIDS in 1996. She subsequently worked for the United Nations system for 20 years, advocating globally for the rights of people living with HIV. Her collaborative work also led to a mandatory HIV in the workplace programme internal to the United Nations system, facilitating platforms for freer dialogue and a more supportive environment for all personnel, including LGBTQ, persons with disabilities and other marginalized population. Martina holds a BA in international relations and an MFA in creative writing and literature. Currently, she is an adjunct for LaGuardia Community College, part of CUNY, where she teaches English 101 and critical reading to NYC public high school students earning college credits early. Her award-winning debut book, My Unexpected Life, an international memoir of two pandemics, HIV and COVID-19, was published in October 2021, and an audio version will be available from January 2023. And on today's podcast, we'll be chatting about My Unexpected Life with HIV. A uh, very well-welcome to the podcast, Martina Clark. How are you today, Martina?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No, my pleasure. I'm excited to chat with you. So we, we spoke briefly uh, before we, we I pressed the fancy record button. So where are you right now on planet Earth?
1: Right now, I am on the land of the Lenape, which is most popularly known as Brooklyn, New York. Oh, very nice.
0: Very, very. So is it getting chilly now? Is a weather, how the it... pretend you're some sort of tourism board official? So how yes. are you gonna, how are you going to sell Brooklyn? Is it nice and Christmassy and all the lights and?
1: It is rapidly approaching holiday season weather, <laughs> which okay. means it's so... it's kind of grey and cold.
0: Oh, grey and <laughs> but cold, not okay. terrible. Oh, well, we don't mind that. It's, it has a nice vibe, especially around that that this time of <laughs> year and that part of the uh, the states. So I gave a brief introduction about your background. So can your listeners know a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yes. Um... Where do I even begin? Anywhere. Uh start, okay. s- start when you were born. <laughs> <You're on>. Well, <laughs> the quick version, I was born in New Mexico, the state of New Mexico, and grew up in California, and uh, have actually lived in a few different places around the world. And now I find New York is home, but I'm desperately trying to get back to California. Right. That's where my heart is, even if my physical person is not there yet. Okay. Um, And today in 2022, I'm an adjunct professor at LaGuardia Community College, which is part of CUNY, the City University of New York City. Um, And I teach English and critical reading and global politics. And in January, I'll teach uh, public speaking. But before all of that, in 1992, when I was 28 and sort of planning what I thought my life might look like, I was diagnosed with HIV and told I probably had five years to live.
0: Wow, okay. Especially at 28 years of age. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a shock,
1: yeah. To to say the least. Yes. (laughs) And
0: I I mean, right, let's generally give an overview first uh, for any listeners. I mean, what, what is HIV? Before we go really deep, into when you got your diagnosis, you were very young. So what is HIV in the most basic, simplistic explanation?
1: The very simple explanation is HIV is an acronym for Human Immunodeficiency Virus. It is transmitted uh, person to person, primarily through sexual contact. And if untreated, it is the pathogen that can lead to AIDS, which can kill you. If you right. don't have treatment, okay. So that's the sh- the easy version.
0: The easy version, right? So when you hear then the news, Martina, when you're twenty eight years of age, um, why first did you hear the news? I mean, were you experiencing any symptoms? Did you have any issues or problem, or was it just a norm to get tested in, in that um, time? If you know what I mean.
1: Right. Right. No, it was actually. Um, so I was in San Francisco in California which is a very liberal city and uh, a lot of gay people have made that their home. Okay. And in the early 90s, late 80s, there were a lot of people living with HIV. It was uh, media campaigns every place, but the messages were all targeting gay men. Right. And I, at the same time, was having symptoms um just not feeling well, a general malaise, not any one thing that was easy to figure out uh, for several months. And so my doctor actually said to me, well, you're a single woman, you're not married, let's do an HIV test because I don't know what else to do. And that was why he tested me. I had been tested previously for to donate blood, uh, but that had been several years prior So he tested me and I think as much to his surprise as mine, it came back positive. He said he'd never had a patient with HIV, which again, considering the context and the timing and the location was a little bit surprising, but it is what it is. Um, And then I just felt, to be honest, I felt like my life had just been wiped clean. Like everything that had happened up until that moment when I heard the news ceased to be relevant. And uh, not in a good way, <laughs> right. starting over, of course. Yeah, of course. More, know, like everything <laughs> just got wiped a cl- wiped clean. And um, here I was with this news that I was 28 and five years to live, thinking, "Oh my God, you know, what do I even do? How do I proceed? And um, I just sort of felt like I had nothing to lose, right. and I became an activist. Because I didn't know what else to do. And it made me feel like I was staying one step ahead of the virus.
0: And was there, I mean, at that time specifically, there was a lot of, now correct me if I'm totally wrong here, but was there a lot of ignorance out there in relation to HIV and AIDS, especially possibly on media platforms? Because when you got that diagnosis when you're 28 years of age, I'm hoping that you got the support that you needed. If you understand what I'm trying to get at, yeah. like there was a bit of a taboo about HIV and and AIDS. I don't know what it was like in the States specifically, but I know in other parts of, of Europe, there was this kind of it kind of associated, as you mentioned, just with one area and it didn't talk right. about all areas.
1: Exactly. No, there was still a huge amount of stigma and discrimination um, and as you mentioned, like at least in North America, the messaging was really targeted towards gay men in particular, and necessarily so because that community was being hit the hardest right. Um, but it didn't really um, it didn't really open up space for other people who were testing positive at the same time. And so there was an association, again, because it's related to sex, I I could sort of feel an immediate switch in people's tone if I said, I hate HIV, that, uh, you know, what kind of a person must I be? Um, And it was much, much, much worse than it is now, but it's not entirely gone, I would have to say.
0: Do you find it now? I mean, what you're saying is not entirely gone. Is there still that ignorance? Am I right in saying the word ignorance? I think so. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think the thing is that, um, so sort of to skip ahead a little bit, I ended up working for the United Nations as an HIV educator, and I did training in-house for our personnel. And sort of two things that happened on a regular basis was one, me going in as the HIV specialist from New York to do the training. Everything's good. The minute I disclosed, the whole room changed because I was no longer just a public health specialist in people's mind, I suddenly became this person with HIV and all of their um, ideas of what that meant, whether they're right or wrong. Uh, So I felt the way that people perceived me, I felt that shift dramatically. Um, And the other thing that I had to keep constantly reminding myself is that not everybody knows about HIV. And so it's sort of a cycle um, there's cars outside honking.
0: Oh, don't worry, that's a honk way. <laughs> okay,
1: okay, <laughs> okay. You're, so, you're uh, a
0: busy area, the Bronx or Brooklyn.
1: Don't <laughs> Brooklyn, yeah, it yeah. is a loud quarter. Okay, <laughs> so, um, so I had to just constantly remind myself that you know I'm starting fresh each and every time because not everybody knows about HIV or what they know may be wrong or they have a you know everybody has different um, amounts of knowledge. And we used to joke that it was the same meeting, different decade, because (laughs) we were starting every single time as if nobody knows anything. And I think that's what the ignorance is, is people, you know, they don't, first of all, they don't want to be an expert on it, because if they are, that means it's in their life somehow.
0: Right.
1: Um, And so people distance themselves from it. And I understand that, you know, that's that's a human reaction that makes sense. But consequently, we had a lot of people um, in my trainings that just didn't know. Some were just not very nice, but mostly the vast majority of people just simply did not know.
0: So Martine, if you say they weren't very nice, right, or they did not know, and I suppose I'm going to be related as well in previous jobs I've had, where you can show somebody, try to educate them and show them... Um, say, scientific evidence or whatever. But as you mentioned, if they choose not to be associated with it, there's nothing much you can really do. And their opinion is their opinion. At the end of the day, you're probably not going to really change that. But what about, I mean, was it difficult then, say, for example, you went for, for possible jobs or meetings. I mean, back then, did you have to inform individuals that you had HIV? Was that the norm? Did you have to report it? Did you have to tell employers or future employers?
1: Uh, that is an excellent question. So I I did not have to tell employers, um, but I'll tell you an interesting story, which is that I ended up being recruited to work for UNAIDS, which is the UN body that sort of becomes um, HIV central, if you will, for the whole UN. So they yes. sort of oversee... That everybody's doing their part and that no parts are left undone. Um, and so, in 1996, I went to Geneva. I was initially on a three-month contract, but then I had to have um, this like a probation period and then a medical visit uh, through their medical services to eventually get onto a two-year contract. They, the UNAID staff, actually told me, "Don't tell medical services." Because you're the first one ever to go through the system. And we don't know if they will accept you. Okay. And mind you, this is to work on HIV at UNAIDS. And they still didn't know if I would be allowed into the system. So I didn't tell them. And I got through and it was fine because my general health was still very good. So unless they did an HIV test, which they're not supposed to do without telling you, um, they would not have known. They The UN judges on your fitness for work. They don't test for specific things.
0: How did that make you feel then? So you have a double-sided coin here. So you're working for you and AIDS, and then you know that you have HIV. And it's, I, I don't know how you felt, but um, I know myself, I'd be kind of like worried that if, if they did a test and they found out would they... Say I was hiding something. Was that going around in your mind all the time, or did you just you just said you said look, okay, I'm going to be open and honest here, just just go go um, with the flow.
1: I I really just went with the flow because I I you know even though my my official job title was NGO liaison, um, for me I felt that I was a representative of the community and I was there more as an in-house activist, not exactly a spy, but an in-house activist. Right. <laughs>
0: You were and James so, Bond, yeah,
1: exactly, James Bond. James HIV,
0: Bond. HIV. <laughs> you said that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so I felt um, that I t- I had to be open because otherwise I was I was letting myself down, if not the whole rest of the community. Um, and I would rather have had the battle with them to say, "You're being a hypocrite." saying we want people with HIV to be involved in this program because it's a program for people with HIV. And yet we're not going to accommodate you on staff. I was ready to do battle on that. And I think that my colleagues were also ready, but they also didn't want to like force the fight. <laughs> right. So they're like, eh, just don't say anything. If it comes up, we'll deal with it. But, you know, keep it quiet for the moment until you get your approval and you're on a full-time contract and then we can then it'll be easier to do the fight um and i i would like to believe i can't guarantee this 100 percent, but i would like to believe that the un has made um a lot of progress and would not hire fire somebody or not hire them simply because they had hiv that is against our personnel rules
0: would that apply in other industries do you think
1: not necessarily. Same, no, I no, I think it might not. And I think it also depends on the nature of the work. So if you're doing um, anything where there's a risk of you, you know, cutting your hand and bleeding, for example, they might think that that would be something that they would be afraid of. Um, it would not be legitimate, certainly not at this point, but it might be considered. And I think that there's a perception that it's kind of like this ridiculous idea that, you know, people don't want to hire pregnant women because they're just going to leave and or or even women in general, because they're just going to go off and have kids and then they won't be in the workforce. They won't be present, right? Right. There is a presumption, presumption that people with HIV are eventually going to miss a lot of work and get sick and whatever. But those are stigmas. Those are ideas in people's head. They're not really borne out by the facts.
0: Do you think as well, Martina, that? This is the world that we live in I'm not saying it's right um you know corporations and big companies are they scared to possibly hire say an, a, a, a future candidate who maybe has HIV or AIDS and then it gets out in the open that uh, this member of staff has it and you know you generate this fear. Yeah. Um, do you think this is the possibility they're afraid of maybe lawsuits and all this oh, nonsense? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. An insurance burden of having to you know pay for more health care. Um, what does it look like for the company? How are the other colleagues going to take it? Uh, will colleagues want their families and children around that person? All sorts of things. I'm certain that it goes through people's minds, and it definitely did in those early days. Again, I would like to think we're a little bit beyond that now. I'm not hundred percent sure we actually are.
0: No, I don't. I don't think we are. I mean, and even with myself, I'll be honest with you, you. You read something or you see something in the media, and same again, not criticizing the media, but they're usually the information source that we get um, uh, with regards to certain diseases or, or things that are going on in the world. And you read it, and then it's it's me. It's it's exploded. You're trying to get at like mm-hmm. this will kill you, this will make you very ill, and you kind of without getting your own research. That's why I try to do myself now. I try to educate myself a little bit further and get my own research to find mm-hmm. out the facts and the figures, rather than just you know relying on on one or two uh, sources of information. But back then as well, I mean, I I had heard you now. Tell me again if I'm an idiot, but I would heard that if somebody had. If somebody had known in the workplace that somebody had HIV, they wouldn't drink from the same cup as them, or they mm-hmm. wouldn't use the same toilet. Was that just somebody telling stories, or did those type of things happen?
1: Those things absolutely happen. Absolutely. Yep. When I uh, when I first joined UNICEF, uh, which is another part of my UN career, uh, the fellow who worked across from me, who is a lovely, lovely, lovely person, but somebody who had not been educated about HIV. Um, just as I started to put up posters about HIV, cause that's my job, right? Mm-hmm. He said, um, I hate it when people with HIV come to my desk, because then I have to clean everything. I have to disinfect everything on my desk. Wow. <laughs> and I just stood there and I looked at him and I said, you're gonna have to get over that. <laughs> cause I didn't know what else to say. And I sort of turned around and he looked confused. And gradually, you know, we had conversations and he became educated and came around and ended up being, you know, one of my greatest supporters and he was a wonderful colleague, but he just didn't know. And and that was in 2003. So it was quite recent. Yeah, much yeah. more recent.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. So it wasn't so the case we, like when you sneezed, they didn't evacuate the building, did they? <laughs> and bring in the uh, the hazmat suits with the with the, the disinfectants and the sprays. I mean, it wasn't like that, was it?
1: No, they put police police <laughs> tape up around my desk, but no, no, they didn't. Okay. Was... <laughs> no,
0: you cellophane was... around your desk. You have little holes to breathe out of or something. <laughs> exactly, was I
1: wasn't allowed to use elevators. Or... Okay, no, I'm I'm exaggerating, yeah. but um, no, they were actually very very supportive and wonderful. But that doesn't mean that people didn't have fears of working with me.
0: Yes. What was the worst one you had? What was the worst experience you felt that you kind of went oh, This is this is you may be close yeah. to tears or you just thought you've had enough.
1: Oh, my goodness. There were so many. Um, I uh, There was an HR officer actually at UNAIDS at one point who First of all, said they only hired me because they felt sorry for me. But it was nice. Mm. Yeah, I love it. And then we were in another meeting, and I said, I asked him, and mind you, this is UNAIDS, right? Our whole purpose in the world is to, you know, change the course of this pandemic and support people living with HIV.
0: Yes
1: and i asked him i said if you were in a meeting with people with hiv first of all would you go and secondly if there was food would you you know what would you do and he said i would go because it's my job but i would never eat any of the food and i wouldn't share food with you <laughs> okay so that was also you know and this is in a an environment where you know you have birthday cakes or celebrations at the end of the year or whatever there are occasions and that sort of brought it into um, into reality for me that this person is actively trying to avoid close contact with me, even though I'm just a colleague. Um, I think that hurt a lot because it was early on. As I went through my career, it continued, other people said other things, but it hurt less because I cared less.
0: And relationships, say family members, how, how do they react? To the news. Um, my, h- how did they, did, did things improve as the years went on?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. My siblings, I have many of them, and they were all extraordinary. Um, my parents, my, I was raised uh, very Catholic, and they, it took them a bit of time to sort of digest the information. My mom was always a little bit not really sure if she was 100% supportive or not but that was sort of regardless of hiv <laughs> it was just sort of who she was
0: right
1: um my father was wonderful i was afraid that he would be judgmental or you know not accept me and he was the absolute opposite he was what a good catholic should be he was just loving and wonderful um and absolutely over the years i actually got to a point where i felt like i'd almost wished i'd never told them because i didn't get sick and die. <laughs> so I yes. sort of worried them for all those You're years. You're still here. And You're I'm still, still here. here. <laughs> and I'm like, there's, a, there's a line in, I don't know if it's Nick Cave or who it was, but what good is a disease that doesn't kill you?
0: <laughs> oh yeah. There's gas it is because it's like, you know, your parents and family and you know other relations, they're going thinking, oh, she's still here, but the media said she'd be gone by now. Exactly. How come she's still here? God,
1: yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's it it was yes. it was a very strange dynamic to deal with because we all had this, you know, thought the worst because that's what I was sort of told to think. Um, and then I, you know, five years came and I didn't get sick and ten years and fifteen years, and I ended up being somebody who uh, didn't need treatment for sixteen years. Wow. Which is very unusual. Uh one one virologist I used to work with said I was a little green monkey. Um, I had some special gene that kept me from becoming uh, becoming ill. Um, and I think the main reason that I finally did need treatment was because I was working with the UN and I was traveling all the time. So I was wearing my body down way more than I should have been. And my body was just like, I, uh, I can't keep up. You need three months off to sleep and. You know the job wasn't having it, and HIV took advantage and just let loose, and everything went haywire in a period of like six months, and then it became a a matter of you either start treatment or you die. And And that was two thousand
0: seven. And what is the treatment, Martine? I mean, like I'm not a medical doctor, and we're not. I'm not here to talk about. Mm -hmm. tell anybody that's listening to this, do this or do that. But in your situation, what was the treatment that you were given?
1: So I am taking antiretroviral uh, medications. And at this point, it's one pill once a day. Um, And I'm also not a pharmacologist or a doctor, so I'm not going to tell you what it's made of. I don't know. It's a bunch of good stuff they put into this little pink tablet and I take it. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and it works, and it keeps the viral load, which is the amount of virus in my body, uh, undetectable. And the great thing about that is, science has said that as long as you are undetectable, the you know they can't detect a viral load in your blood, then you are untransmissible. So U equals U is a new campaign, meaning that if you're undetectable, you can't give the virus to somebody else. That's brilliant. I mean... Yes, it is. Absolutely.
0: And do you have any symptoms from this wonderful pill you take?
1: I have been very lucky. I have not had symptoms. And part of why I think I'm so lucky is because I started treatment much later. So I was what we call treatment naive. Um, People who had started other things to test it before the really good medications were available. Some of those people had a lot of side effects, um, and problems with the medication. Whereas for me, I started it, it worked, we've changed it a little bit over the years just because new things become available. Um, but I have not had any problems. I'm really lucky for that.
0: That's brilliant. I mean, it ha- has the numbers, I'll ask you a quick, quick first question, has the numbers of HIV come down around the globe or is it still similar it's to still, years ago?
1: It's, yeah, it's still similar, unfortunately. Um, I looked it up and there are about 38 million people living with HIV globally and more than half the cases are women. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. Yeah. Which is, again, something that I certainly didn't know in 92, but even today, I think um, many people are surprised because that is not the perception we have in North America or in Europe. Um, But in fact, yeah, more than half the, the cases are women and in, at least in North America, The cases actually had a little bit of a bump up again during COVID because services stopped. So the things, interventions that would help people avoid getting exposed or get more information or be tested even, um, those all stopped. And so we've seen a little blip there, but hopefully we'll be able to to reverse that again.
0: And are the numbers of deaths going up or is it kind of, has it leveled off or has because of science and medication, has has it improved?
1: Excellent question, David. Thank you.
0: The um, <laughs> Two stars. I thought of it myself. There we go. There
1: you go. <laughs> the numbers of deaths have actually, um, I would say, leveled off. And right. that is because of treatment. Um, and now we have a whole new phenomenon, which I am also part of, is aging with HIV. And in... The United States, for example, there's actually a huge percentage of people who are over fifty uh, and still living with HIV versus new cases of younger people, and that's because we've all managed to stay alive, which nobody anticipated. So, in these forty years, uh, I have friends who have had HIV for forty years, and I've had it for more than thirty, and there's a whole cohort of us um, getting old with HIV which is a great thing, um, because we didn't think we'd be here, Yes, (laughs) Uh, but it's also science is yet again trying to figure out, okay, what do we do with this? Is it different? Um, What do we know? So, um, people are definitely living longer lives if they have access to healthcare.
0: Relationship-wise, so we'll probably move on to the testing bit now in a minute. I know I, I I had asked you a kind of basic question, but you're going to update it based on testing. That's probably the last 30 or 40 years it's improved. But relationship-wise, before we move on to that, um, for anybody that has HIV or has been diagnosed with HIV, um, what would you recommend them to do if they meet somebody that they like, they have HIV? Do you tell the individual? I mean
1: yeah, that's a tricky question. Um, yeah. so, so, you know if you if for anybody who just heard what I said about u equals u undetectable equals untransmissible, um that is a great scientific uh, achievement. However, at least for me, I think there is still a moral responsibility to tell the other person because it is only fair to give them all of the information possible so they can make an informed decision. Yes. So I would always say, you know, get to know a person. First of all, make sure you like them, (laughs) you know, push things slowly at a time. It helps in general, (laughs) regardless of age. That's it. And then when you feel like, okay, this is a person I, I think I can trust, then tell them before any intimate activity ever happens, just so... You give them the chance to make their own informed decision and then you can also see how they react and right. if they freak out and run away well so much the better you got rid of that one
0: yeah. if
1: they're say you know i need to think about this a little bit um i'm not saying no but give me a moment to digest it i'd say that's fine and of course if they say you know i have had lots of friends with hiv i know a lot about it i'm okay with this uh we'll take it slow then that's a keeper.
0: Have you ever had experience with this yourself throughout the years? Have you ever encountered where you maybe began to like somebody? and yeah. then they, yes. they they ran for the hills.
1: I have. I have had a few run for the hills. Yeah.
0: Right. And how did you feel just for anybody that's listening generally? I mean, because obviously to, to, you know, to find out it, you have HIV and then you're trying to get on with your life and you're trying to do nor- normal things and you meet somebody you like and then, How how did you feel?
1: How did you handle that? Relationships are hard. And I think, um, you know, at the best of times, relationships are hard. And with HIV, you already, at least for me, um, and I think for a lot of people, we sort of add that extra layer of now I'm broken, nobody's going to want me or whatever, which is not smart to do, but I think it is a very human thing to do. It's sort of a natural reaction. And then to be rejected, um, certainly the first few times, it hurts a lot because you feel like the person is not able to see me as the person. They're only seeing this virus. Um, yeah, so it's very painful. But then eventually, you sort of intellectually become able to separate that that's the person's, that's their fears. Yes. And that's their limitation, that's their unwillingness to be educated. And that's somebody who probably is not able to have a deep relationship anyway, if they're not willing to at least talk about this with you. If they run for the hills, it's much better to let them run, you know, give them a bottle of water for the road and, <laughs> and say good luck. Yeah. Um
0: Thanks for the memories. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was nice. Yeah. No, I I think I think yeah. like anything else, it's 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 um you know, it, it's great now that the, the science is there. You can get medication. You can live your life, and it's just part of the process, as opposed to with any relationship. If if somebody doesn't like you, whether you have a seven toes or you have something else going on, um, they're not meant to be. Exactly,
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it's it's hard. You know, um, it's really hard in those moments because you're human. You know, and you want to, everybody wants to be loved. That's normal, and yeah. And it hurts when it it's something that is external that you know it's not. It's not a character flaw. It's a physiological issue. Yes. And so it hurts. Yeah.
0: Do you ever feel? Well, I didn't. You don't have to answer this. We don't want to, Martin. But do you ever feel that life has been unfair to you because you had. Yeah. HIV. You know what I'm trying to get at? Do you mm-hmm. ever feel that, you kind of like, why me? Is it is, is that part as well?
1: I certainly did at the beginning. I I very much um, felt that and sort of a side note, I was recently with my family and my one of my nieces is 28, so the same age I was. She has a child who's a year old, married, in a great relationship, having a wonderful life. And there were moments when I was looking at her thinking, ah, this was the life I sort of thought I might have, a life like hers, and mine got yanked away. And so even as recently as like a month ago, that feeling of I got cheated bubbled up, which surprised me. Um, but, I, but I absolutely felt that in the early years, like uh, I just, everything got stolen. I, you know, I wasn't going to have any of these things our experiences or relationships. In reality, now, 30 years later, I look back, I've had an extraordinary life. And some of it, because I had HIV, because I ended up on this path of being an educator, um, an activist, of speaking up about HIV, trying to support other people living with HIV. Um, I ended up at the UN for almost like 20 years off and on in different positions. And it was amazing, and I have no reason to believe that would necessarily have happened otherwise. So I can't really complain now. Now I realize I've had an extraordinary life, but absolutely at the beginning I felt cheated.
0: Okay, then let's move on then to the testing. So the general question I was going to ask you, which you've correctly pointed out. I mean, the tests that I know. So anybody here is listening that may have may feel they need to get go go get testing. So the difference between when you got tested and now, has it been progression? And can you explain the different types of tests?
1: So I can only sort of explain the different kinds of tests in 2022 because surprisingly, I don't get tested for HIV anymore. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Exactly. I'm pretty sure that I have it, so I don't get tested. But um, basically, they're very simple tests. And I think it's a mouth swab at this point is the easiest one there's also uh, just a needle stick uh finger prick I, I guess you would say um and then there are other blood tests where they actually draw blood from your veins and test it that way so there are different levels and you could do a simple hiv test kind of like a pregnancy test or a rapid test for covid and if it comes back positive then you'd go for verification in a lab um the main difference now is even if you're going to the lab, you can get those results probably within 24 hours.
0: Well, Okay. That's
1: quick. when I was, yeah, it's a very fast turnaround. And when I was tested positive, um, you had to wait a few weeks. Those are very long weeks. Yes. You know, when you're yeah. like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe it's HIV. Maybe it's not. I didn't really think it was going to be HIV only because I'd never seen another woman with HIV that I knew of. But of course, it was lingering in my mind. Well, maybe it is because nothing else is. My doctor can't figure out what else is wrong with me. Um, And those were a lot of anguished days and nights waiting for that result.
0: The doctors themselves. So now, with, with all the the education that you're providing to others, the doctors now, in your own opinion, when they inform somebody that they have HIV, is it more of a positive experience? Then I, you know, or you have HIV. And a, Did they talk down to you years ago when you had it compared to now?
1: Um, woo, That's an excellent question. Another two stars for you, sir. Thanks very much, Jules. Um <laughs> <laughs> I think at the time, the doctors didn't exactly talk down to me, but they didn't know what to do with me because they had, they didn't have female patients. Right. So it was not 100% clear how to deal with me. I was not their you know, regular patient and um it was sort of almost more dismissive than talking down. I mean nobody really knew. Kind of like with COVID now, we're all just figuring it out and they were figuring it out. But I I sort of created this new conundrum for them. Like, oh my goodness, I've dealt with men, gay men with HIV, but I don't know what to do with this woman with HIV. Right. Um, I also would say that for the most part, almost every doctor I've had uh, has been really quite lovely and they have been respectful of me. Um, I don't know if that is the case for everybody though. And I think it depends a lot on your location If you're in New York City or San Francisco or Geneva or Brussels, Dublin, probably they have excellent access to uh, information. They're well educated about it. They have experiences to draw from. They're hopefully going to be uh, understanding and helpful and just honest with you and say, this is what it is. This is what it means in this time and place. Uh, You can start treatment when needed or now if it is needed at the time um whatever if you test positive in you know the middle of america in a rural state in a rural part of that state i don't know you know it depends on what the doctor has been exposed to themselves how they're going to try and educate you so a lot of it depends on where you are when you're tested um I'm not sure that really answers the question, but... Um... No, no, I, I, I get what
0: you mean. Like So same example, yeah. right, you are maybe in an area or a state or some place in the world where they're not fully aware of HIV and mm-hmm. and and the help out there. I mean, does, is there any United Nations platform or can you recommend anything for anybody that kind of said, look, I want to go and get the best best help I can get, the best information I get? Is there platforms or systems out there where an individual, say they're living in Florida, for example, and they want to go, they hear that you know uh, Brooklyn has the best in the country. Can that mm-hmm. be arranged?
1: So, um, yes. I would say that if you are in any country, there's probably some public health um, branch of the government. In the United States, it's called the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. Uh, they, for example, have a website. And within that website, they have a huge amount of information for people like us, individuals, normal people, versus for the medical professionals. Um, and there they keep a database of what services are available wherever you are. Um, there are also networks of people living with HIV. And there are a couple of global networks and they can tap you into a local network uh, within your country that can help you find information and just sort of to get the skinny on what it's like for people with HIV where you live. Right. So I would say those are things that I would look out for. Um, UNAIDS keeps a database that has global statistics, but it's not necessarily going to point you in the direction of, uh, well, I, sh- I take that back. Um, UNAIDS does have country program managers in every country where it works, which is probably not Dublin, probably not Brooklyn. But if you're living in a less industrialized country, you may be able to find the name of the person who's the UNAIDS program coordinator, and they can help you, um, at least guide you. Or they will have a local website that will tell you who are the services and who are the communities of people living with HIV, because that is their job. That's why they're there. They're there to uh, to sway the government and make sure they're doing what they could. They can, um, but they're also there to support people. Like not on every single individual in a country comes to them by any means, but they facilitate that there is support for people living with HIV in a given country.
0: And the great thing as well, Martina, you know, you're you're an example that you can have a life with HIV. So. You're you're a great inspiration to anybody that is listening to this. I want to find out more information. So it is a case of you can. So if anybody's panicking right now, listening to this, or they've just been diagnosed with HIV, or and they're hearing all this negativity, you can live a normal life, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah my as normal as I can be, I'm not sure how normal I am, but uh, <laughs> but in terms of HIV, I can live an absolutely a normal life. Um, my my health is not particularly damaged because of HIV because I've been very lucky, but I've also been vigilant with making sure I get the care I need when I need it. Um, and I think that one of the best things that a person can do, is to find a community of other people living with HIV where they live. Find a support group of other like-minded people um, and get to know what their experiences are, doctors that they prefer, doctors they would avoid, services they have found. And I I actually was a little bit resistant to support groups at the beginning myself for some reason, but I, um, Once I got into that, I I realized it made all the difference so that I knew that I was not alone. And I literally knew other people with HIV to just to compare notes with, just to commiserate with, um, to whine with, whatever you need to do. It makes a huge difference. And I see that again and again and again as I've met people with HIV over the years the ones that are really thriving are often the ones that have a community of people with HIV beyond just their net their own support network. Because you realize I'm not the only one. There are other people, and it's okay. And they're living lives, and they're interacting in the world. They're working. They're having families. They're doing all the things that everybody else does. Um, it, I think, is that information is best digested when it's given from another person with HIV.
0: Well, here's a different question for you, Martina. You don't Mm -hmm. have to answer We don't want to. Um, Why do you think, in your own opinion, we see a lot of, especially with companies and corporations, and you see a lot of images per se, and it talks about diversity, and then we have the uh, LGBTQ. Am Mm -hmm. I saying that correctly? I don't offend anybody. Is it LGBT? The why why when we see, and this is what I've seen, I'm not saying it's going to be the same in the States or anywhere else, anywhere, but this is what I see is that when we see an image of somebody that may have HIV, it's sometimes a child in Africa or somebody who's on death's door. Mm-hmm. Why isn't, do you think, is it portrayed on these social media platforms, company platforms a healthy looking individual like yourself
1: another two stars for you sir that's an excellent Thanks. question
0: thank you <laughs> that's a joe rogan watch out joe rogan i'm coming I'm
1: <laughs> you know I, I i think that that the answer to that is mm-hmm. um, sensationalizing things sells ah, you know okay. it's the same for any other coverage we see more you know, coverage about um the impact of war and the devastation of communities than we do about the individuals who are maybe making a difference to try and reverse the conflict or, you know, the one person who's doing all of these great things in uh, in country X due to a conflict. You know, we right. don't we, we get a few of those little you know, uh, special interest stories of somebody, some individual, the good news parts. But the majority of it is the bad news part because it's what captivates people. Um, But there have been, there have been a lot of campaigns trying to change that. um, At least around HIV, uh, showing that people do live normal lives and are vibrant, uh, contributing members of society, showing people healthy and active. Um, I, I think there's a concerted effort to try and change that, but again, it comes back to the ignorance part. That it, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of fallen out of the news cycle for some time because HIV is not resolved, but it has not been getting worse and worse and worse. So it's not as fancy to cover as it is to cover, you know, the Ebola outbreaks or the war in Syria or trying to think of other things that were happening in those sort of middle years. Yes. But now it's sort of, you know, we need to cover it again. And so sometimes the people who are creating the news uh, stories, maybe they don't have the the knowledge that that they should. And so they revert back to those horrible, horrible images yeah. that are not helpful for anybody, just to get people to think about it. And I don't think that they are useful. I don't think they're impactful. I think they just shut people up even more because nobody wants to see that.
0: Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I mean, maybe scagon photographs of like men with six packs and and women that have, you know, in the bikinis or something like that, because <laughs> it's it, it no, honestly, it does it gives you that when you look, you are kind of like go, "I'm sure that child that's in Africa is not the only one that has HIV." You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm sure there's other people in different countries. And why are we showing this image? Let's, yeah, everybody's—they're all pushing. Everybody's pushing this. You know, let's be fair, diverse. And I totally get it, but mm-hmm. let's move on with the times and educate more. And that's more my next mm-hmm. question. I'm going to move into. So, how do we educate ourselves more? I know you mentioned you—you uh, you do a lot of work, yeah, with UNAIDS, and, and but what what. What can we do? I mean, if you were say you're running running the global world tomorrow, what would you what would you point people towards and say, look, this is what you need to do to try and educate yourself if you want to educate yourself?
1: Uh, so as an individual, I would say again, go back to whatever is your public health platform in the country where you live and look to see if they have uh, verified information about HIV that pertains to your country or your location, wherever you are, Um, start there. And everybody should know about HIV. It is, I feel, just sort of a human duty in 2022 still to know about HIV, even if it's not for yourself, so that you can educate other people. If you have children, if you have nieces or nephews or other younger people in your life that um, you want to make sure that you can educate them. Um, And then I would also say that as companies, because we talk about businesses, what we did with the UN uh, when I joined UNICEF in 2003, I ended up being a part of a small sort of self-appointed team from different parts of the UN. And we conceptualized, created, and eventually got approved and implemented an HIV in the workplace program for the whole United Nations Wow. And that that was no small thing. No, <laughs> It was <laughs> a major undertaking and it took us years. But eventually the program was approved and it was up and running in a hundred different countries, more than hundred like 120 different countries. And the idea behind it was we don't, you know, how dare we tell the rest of the world what to do if we're not doing it in-house, right? Yeah. And um, we did that primarily to support UN personnel living with HIV who were not getting the support they needed because their workplace was not as comfortable as it should have been. So in a very immediate selfish sense, we did that because we wanted to make sure that anybody in any UN office, if they have HIV or they suspected they could have HIV, that they would feel comfortable to be tested and rely on the system to support them. We also did that to be a role model So that we could say our business, in this case, the UN, UNICEF, UNDP, whoever, we're doing it. Can we help you do it for your company or for your branch of the government? Because that's one of the best ways to educate people, even if it's a little workshop once a year, just to give the basic information. This is what it is. This is what you need to know. Uh, This is how you prevent it. If you're positive, this is the the personnel policy for this company. Uh, we will indeed support you. Your medications will be covered. Whatever it is, uh, it could be folded into um, a health day where they also talk about uh, heart disease or diabetes or other issues that people or COVID. You know, it could be a number of things that get covered. But I think it's important to not forget to include it. To not think that, oh, that happened in the 90s or the 80s, it's over with. It should still be included on a list of health issues that people need to know about because that is the responsible thing to do as an employer, as a government, um, who whoever it is that's sort of the big boss, they should be thinking about that. And I think as an individual, if somebody is concerned or um, not even necessarily for themselves, You know, there's no reason they couldn't go to their own HR offices and say, What do you think about doing a health day? Maybe I'll help you organize it. And we'll just have an afternoon where we sit around and everybody brings their lunch and we talk about these different issues that our staff are either dealing with directly or could be, or, you know, maybe in the future their kids need to know about. Let's give our personnel the opportunity to learn in a safe environment. So they don't have to go out and find the information on their own because it can be very scary.
0: Did you love your work there? I mean, it, it seems so rewarding what you were doing. But I mean, did you did you wake up in the morning going, Woof, Did you ever pinch yourself?
1: <laughs> there were moments when I definitely pinched myself, um, <laughs> and I would say overwhelmingly yes. I loved my work. Um, it was very very rewarding. I felt very proud of what we did. Um, But there also came a point after a couple decades when I was sort of like, I'm just really tired. Right. And the work was meaningful, but it wasn't necessarily addressing my own personal needs. Right. As Martina, who existed long before HIV, who wanted to be a writer, who wanted to travel just to travel, not for work, um, who wanted to do other things, the, the artistic persons. And, um, so I eventually left because I was sort of burnt out, Right. but to this day, I am still extremely proud of the work that we did. And, um, there were absolutely moments when I pinched myself going, wow, I am the luckiest person I know, um, to get to do this work. Cause I really believe in it. And, um, yeah, I felt, you know, I slept well at night, if you will, um, because I knew that I was trying to put good into the world versus just trying to help some gazillionaire make more gazillions that I would never see.
0: I'm telling you, lots of gazillionaires out there these days, isn't there? <laughs> anyway. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> if only it was us, Martina, we could then. Exactly. <laughs> we could be gazillionaires. Um, what about then, I mean, with this pinch-me moments and... I'm sure if there's somebody listening to this, obviously, is a well-being career world, so does career part of it as well. Um, to get into an internet job in the United Nations systems, but I mean, what is the squishy underbelly of the United <laughs> Nations? I'm dying to find out. What do you mean by that?
1: <laughs> so that uh what I mean is, you know, the UN is, I believe, the largest bureaucracy in the world.
0: No comment. Um, <laughs> I- <laughs> Overruled. No comment. <laughs> they will be at my door, door in five minutes to have this call traced. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't say the worst, but okay. but I think but I think the biggest only because there's a presence everywhere in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so the nature of the UN also is to respond to crises. <clears throat> so something bad happens, the UN goes in to try and help fix it. Um We also try to work with governments to avoid things happening in the first place. But behind all of that are individuals, right? The however many hundred, two hundred thousand people that work for the UN, is probably more than that. I don't know the actual count. Um, If you counted every single person affiliated, I'm sure it's hundreds of thousands. So all of those people are individuals. And... The squishy underbelly is the part that is supposed to be also taking care of our own personnel that gets bogged down in the fact that governments give money to the UN to take care of emergencies. They do not give money to the UN to take care of UN personnel. Right. And so that's where the disconnect is. And that's where that squishy underbelly is that you have to sort of go in and poke at it and say, hey, 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 hey yes, we have to do all of these things out in the world, but we can't do any of them if we're not taking care of our own staff. Because that's our that's our, our workforce, right? If we don't have yes. a v- healthy, um, viable workforce, we are not going to be a successful business. We have to take care of our own. And so we were constantly going in and sort of poking at that squishy underbelly that did not want to be poked until they finally said, okay, leave us alone. Fine. We're going to let you do this program. And um, it ended up changing the whole way that the UN takes care of staff in general. Didn't fix everything, but it opened up the doors a little bit more for other people to come and say, okay, great. You're talking about HIV. Um, What about these issues? What about parents with um, children who have special needs? How are we dealing with that if they need a little more time off during the workday for medical appointments? There are any number of issues that could be raised. And that's what I think of is sort of basically the internal mechanisms to support staff within the UN, which are remarkably small compared to the enormity of the UN and its mandate.
0: So generally, Marty, you're trying to tell me that for any listener there trying to get a job with the UN the United Nations is that it's not about the gym membership. It's not about the staff travel benefits. It's what is it? so generally because most people these days it's all about um you've explained it so beautifully, but it's all about what's the benefits? Do we get free membership? Do we get do we get Money off Walgreens, or do we get, you know Walmart tokens, or whatever it is, or coupons? Um. So yeah, Martina has explained it very nicely. It does none of that. But actually, by the way, do you have a membership for United Nations?
1: <laughs> no, I. Um, <laughs> no.
0: no. And what are the travel benefits like, Martina? Tell me.
1: Oh my goodness, that's so. I will say, as a as a human being, the part that I do miss, I I miss um, over. Any flight over eight hours, you get to go in business class. Oh, nice. Because you're going for business, right? The idea is you're supposed to get off the plane and go to work. Yes. So I'm I missed that because I'm not paying for business class on my own, but, but no. I sure did enjoy it. <laughs> the benefits, um, we had six weeks paid uh vacation. Oh, wow. Was- okay, that's pretty good. Brilliant, certainly yeah. compared to the United States, where you get about six hours, I think, um,
0: <laughs> if, you're <lucky. laughs> if you're lucky, if you're lucky, exactly, you and not yeah.
1: all on one day, right? Yeah.
0: Well, oh, you're so, still breeding. Um, oh, come into work if you're still breeding. Yeah, come on. <laughs> but I can't walk. Doesn't matter. You're breeding. <laughs> Doesn't you matter.
1: Come? Exactly. <laughs> um, and and the jobs are very well paid. Um, you know, not as well paid as Silicon Valley or the tech society, uh, tech sector, or you know, probably many, many other parts of the world, but um, of the workforce, but, but all things considered, it's very well paid, um, good environment, generally a supportive environment. And to me, the best part was working with other extraordinary people. So a job in the UN is an excellent job. I have no regrets about that and I felt very, very lucky to have had the jobs that I had and I very much appreciated the benefits in my little glass of champagne and business class.
0: You sold it so well, Martina, they're not going to be tracing this call anymore. United Nations, we we love you. And um, let's move on to your artistic side before we go. It's nearly, the pain is nearly over Martina talking to me, but anyway. Um, so the artistic side, you have, a, you have a book, which is My Unexpected Life, an international memoir of two pandemics, HIV and COVID-19. So the title pretty much gives it away, but what is it about? So what can readers or listeners expect?
1: Yeah. it's uh, So it's, it's sort of a braided memoir that weaves my personal story as a woman living with HIV. Um, with my work specifically with the United Nations and how we tried to change the system from not tried, we did change the system from within. And then because of the nature of the work traveling all the time, there's a lot of travel, sort of a travel memoir element to it as well. And the book starts, you know, sort of the very beginning when I found out I had HIV and then my path of becoming an activist and the different, um, forums that that took until I ended up at the UN. And then because I was doing the final edits during COVID, and because I am a virus overachiever, I also had COVID early on in March of 2020. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. Yeah, lucky me. Lucky you.
0: (laughs) The world, the world, the universe is looking after you, Martina.
1: (laughs) It just is. It it said, you know, you have a good book, but let's make it a great book. Let's have another pandemic for you. Yeah,
0: here we go.
1: (laughs) So, so I bookended um, the 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 whole manuscript with COVID. So it starts actually comparing COVID to living in San Francisco in the mid '80s and the onset of the AIDS pandemic. And then throughout it weaves some similarities and I make uh, reference to things that are similar, things that are very different, um, just my own observations of the two pandemics. And then winds up with talking a little bit about my own uh, experience with having COVID-19, which surprisingly has done more like physical damage in two years than HIV in 30.
0: Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's very weird. It's very strange. We won't get into that right now. Let's sell your book. Let's talk. <laughs> okay. So I'm I'm on your website, MartinaClark.com, and okay, where, where can you buy the book? I mean, I'm looking where you can buy. You can buy it pretty much everywhere. And yeah. I do love Barnes and Noble. I'm not, you know, upsetting the rest of the shops that are out there, but you can't beat the Barnes and Noble.
1: Barnes and Nobles are great. Love They're them. They're really good. They're really yeah. Good. Yeah. And it's also distributed um, through independent bookstores. So if you're a person who doesn't want to go to anything bigger than the corner bookstore, you can request that they order it for you. Um, if you're in the States and you want a copy signed, I have some. I can send them to people. Uh, you can order it directly through me, through the website, which is martina Clark.com.
0: I forgot to say the um, hyphen. I do apologize. I that's do okay. Apologize. I th- apologize. <laughs> th-
1: it will probably still come up anyway, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um Yeah, it's so it's basically it's available anywhere books are sold. You can get it. And the sort of last default, of course, is Amazon. Um, which I confess to using Amazon. I don't love to support Amazon. I wish there was a different Existence of that company because it's very helpful. But um, again, we get back to the gazillionaires and their spaceships. Oh,
0: there's Uncle, there's Uncle Jeff on the phone. He's tracing this call again. Exactly. <laughs> I'm <and laughs> Tracing this. What did she just say? <laughs> How dare she? So, what about the? I'm looking. at look at your website. It's pretty cool. Uh, you have your blog. You've published pieces about yourself, awards, and press. So, the 2022 finalists for Social Change American Writing Awards. What was that?
1: Um, it is, there are many contests for books and that one is um, quite prestigious, I suppose we could say. And well done, basically, you. thank you. Yeah. You submit your book and they read it. And if they like it, they, they give you a little prize for it. And then you can tell people on podcasts that you've won a couple of awards for your book.
0: You're very bashful. You should be promoting <laughs> this. You should be like, you know, standing in front of uh, in Brooklyn somewhere. Um, you know, just shouting out at the top of your voice, telling, look what I want, look what I want. So you're on social <laughs> media as well. Uh, not like myself very much. I'm a bit of a um, Enya. Have you heard of Enya, have you? I have. Yeah, Enya, the kind of amazing singer she is, Um, uh, but she just kind of stays away from the limelight. So I'm a bit like that myself, but you're not, Martina. You are on um, well, you yeah, have Facebook, Instagram, you're on the LinkedIn's, the Twitter, YouTube, anywhere else? Uh,
1: I think that's, that's pretty much it. That's
0: yep. on oh, Facebook, yeah. I think I said that yep. one. So generally, if somebody was to get in touch with you just through the website, contact you there, ask you questions, you have mm-hmm. no problem That so you've, you've, you've heard it here first, everybody. Martina says you can contact her day and night and she'll ask her any questions that you have.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Yes, I would be delighted. It would be an honor to to answer questions. And if for any reason somebody asks a question that I feel is not appropriate, I will say, here's why it's not appropriate and don't ask anybody else, but here's where you can find the information.
0: that's the best way
1: there you go because I think Uh, that people uh, you know everybody has the um, the right to have access to information and if but I'm happy to answer questions I'm very open and have been for 30 more than 30 years about HIV and be delighted to to answer questions for people or speak if somebody's got a you know if you do a book group and you decide you want to read this and you want to have a Zoom session with me I'm happy to Zoom in or class that you're teaching I'm here. Or
0: corporations. Or, or corporations.
1: corporations. Yeah. Want Anybody Martina. wants to talk about... Absolutely. I can talk about workplace programs. Absolutely. You can fly,
0: you can fly her over business class. It's, there you uh, go. Once it's more than eight hours. Once it's, uh, you pay off the uh, the environmentally friendly trees, <laughs> that's what you can do to offset her carbon emissions. she be more than delighted, she will, to, uh, to chat. But it's been a joy today to chat to uh, Martina Clark. Uh, I'll put all the links. Uh, once Wonderful the podcast is approved into uh, uh, into Martina, so you can get in touch. She says, "So it's been a joy to chatting today, Martina. Thanks so much for chatting with me today on the uh, the podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me."